Good morning, church. It's great to be here. Good to see all of you out this morning. Beautiful uh, day that God has granted to us. And uh, wish everybody a uh, happy 4th, even though it's 4th of July Eve. (laughs) But uh, we are in John chapter 1 this morning in our Sunday school lesson. Again, switching gear from looking at the Suffering Servant songs there in the book of Isaiah. And uh, now we're going into the Gospel of of John and going to look at some lessons. And um, next week's lesson, uh, Covey will be in John chapter 4, verse 46 through 54. Can I catch him? Watch, Cody. I don't want to kill you. All right, I make, I jingle those, so sorry about that. John 4, 46 through 54 will be next week's lesson. And today we're going to be looking in John chapter 1, verses uh, 1 down through verse 14. And the theme of our lesson is uh, the Word becomes flesh. The Word becomes flesh. How can my words become flesh? Think about that. How can God's words take on flesh and tabernacle amongst us? I thought about that as I was studying this lesson. I'm like, wow. It's kind of deep. And it is deep. When you look at all these things, and because of the time constraints, I want to stick to our lesson notes because our lesson writer does bring up a lot of interesting things that I've never looked at or thought about before uh, with this. A lot of it's basic, basic elements and teachings there that we teach all the time, but uh, there are also some other things that uh, the lesson writer brings up that are very interesting. Why don't we get started with a word of prayer, and then we'll get into our lesson today. Dear God and Heavenly Father, we do love you and praise you. We thank you that we could be here to study this uh, text today. Be with me as I try to expound upon it and bring out uh, the meaning of this text and uh, these ideas that the lesson writer gives us to be able to better understand uh, the meaning of this and uh, the meaning of... uh, the Word of God coming and uh, taking on flesh and tabernacling amongst us and how He is eternal and uh, how He is divine. So be with me, dear God. Help me to recall that I've studied. And again, be with uh, each student to hear. Help them to learn and to grow and gain in their knowledge and understanding of this Scripture today. May you always receive the honor and glory and praise. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, welcome to all of you, and welcome to those who are watching online. The beginning of John's gospel was unlike that of the other three New Testament gospels. Matthew's gospel begins with the genealogy and then the birth narrative of Jesus. Um, Luke's gospel begins with two birth narratives. Mark's gospel doesn't talk about any of that and just skips right to Jesus' adult ministry. But the introduction to John's gospel 
differs dramatically when we see here how he introduces this and, and uh, starts his writing. The Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called synoptic. They're called synoptic because they are similar in perspectives on recounting the person and the work of Jesus. John's gospel stands apart from the others as the others stress Jesus' divine identity as the Son of God and of the Messiah. The introduction to John's gospel draws the reader's attention in referring to the eternality of the Word of God. And uh, throughout our lesson today, uh, these verses, we're going to see the Word, the Word, the Word talked about over and over and over again. By using this designation, John is actually reflecting philosophical and rhetorical concepts <coughs> among his day. Specifically, John's use of the underlying Greek word, word, logos, from which we get our English word, logic, reflects the ways the philosophers tried to make sense of the world. Uh, again, maybe even today, but definitely during John's day. Pagan philosophers used the term to address the ways the pagan gods communicated with the cosmos and the created order. For pagans, the concept of the word was an attempt to make sense of the world and the animating forces therein. However, John, he upends the pagan expectations. Instead of a distant animating life force, or an obscure connection to supernatural reason, John applies the concept of the word to the eternal God of Israel. This God is the one through whom all creation came into being. God has revealed himself specifically to his creation. That John would repurpose a concept used by pagan philosophers makes sense concerning the context and the audience of John's gospel. The gospel was likely composed in the second half of the first century by Jesus' own disciple, John. John is the beloved disciple of Jesus Christ, according to John 21, verse 20. And this was the disciple who testified to these things, who wrote them down, he says, in John 21, 24. So John witnessed these things. He saw these things. He was the closest of all the apostles. He was beloved by Jesus. And I'm sure he loved his master, his teacher, his God. And he went and wrote these things down in the Gospel of John. But in addition to the Gospel of John, we know that he wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John where he expounds on some of these things. And then he was also blessed to be able to write the text of the Revelation. So he wrote five of the New Testament books uh, that we have. Now we assume that John wrote uh, 
his gospel to appeal to a broad audience, to both Jews and Gentiles. And if these were the collective audience of his gospel, then John's emphasis on repurposing pagan philosophical concepts would be understandable. These communities would be familiar with such ideas. Remember the idolatry, the falsehood that they had going on, the pagan society that lived. And again, um, the lesson writer is saying they used some of these terms like word and so forth and said that uh, their gods had these type of things. And who knows, Satan and his dealings and everything, he could have gotten those things out there in society because he knew that uh, Jesus was the, the pre-incarnate Christ, the Messiah, the Word, and uh, he was God and divinity and eternal and with God, and therefore somehow got these ideals and um, teachings in the minds of the men of that day. So John, when he's writing this, yes, it's amazing and it's wonderful for us to read, but he's also combating a lot of the false doctrines and teachings of that day. So kind of interesting that the lesson writer brings that out for us quickly. But he also shows us here that he is one well-versed to be able to speak on this topic with him writing five of the New Testament books. And again, one who's very beloved by Jesus. Any comments or questions or anything you want to say about John right now before we get into the verses here? Okay, I know I was just trying to set up a little bit of what we're doing, but now we're just going to go verse by verse, pick off some of the things that are in here, and I'm going to try to use the notes to help us uh, better understand these things. <clears throat> I'm going to read for you these 14 verses, then we'll go back and look at them. I'm reading from the New American Standard. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. And the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of men, but of God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. I like the old King James here, tabernacled 
amongst us, bringing that picture back to the tabernacle in the uh, early ages of uh, Israel's history when they came out of captivity and they had the tabernacle and God's presence was there. The cloud was on it during the day and the fire, fiery column was on it at night and they knew God's presence was there and he was tabernacling amongst them. He was in the middle of the camp. Jesus is tabernacling amongst us. He's with us. Interesting. And we saw, John here includes himself, we saw him and the apostles and others saw Jesus, his glory, as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So again, this last verse, comments that I've made, who is this word? Jesus, the second part of the Godhead. We use this word Jesus uh, speaking about the incarnation of who he was. Okay, the Bible here, again, gives us many names for Jesus. If you want to go and we could name a whole bunch of different titles that are given to him. But John picks this one here right now as the word. Jesus is the word, who he is. Interesting. It's interesting that he starts here by saying, in the beginning. What do we think of when we think of that? Bill. Everybody's mind would go back to the, the Hebrew text, uh, the first book of the Bible, that phrase there, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, the very beginning of things. Very interesting. Our lesson writer says it like this, what Bill was saying. John begins his gospel with the same words that introduced the Hebrew scriptures in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning. Both accounts, this phrase, highlights that God is eternal. He exists beyond our limited understanding of space and time. The concept of the eternal God who existed before creation needed no further introduction for John's audience. Okay, these people knew. And it goes on here and then adds this phrase. And again, he says, in the beginning was the Word. So back then at the beginning, the Word was back there, okay, which is God. And it's the second part of the Godhead we're going to find out as we can continue to read these 14 verses here. But notice what he says there. And the Word was with God. Wait a second. I thought the Word was God. Well, it does say that. And the Word was God. <laughs> the next phrase but isn't it interesting? The Word was with God. God is what? What is God, the Father? Well, th thinking about who, who He is, um, if I could say bodily, or is a being. God is spirit. Now, 
Can the Spirit speak? Must be able to because the Word's there. God the Father was there, but the Word, the second part of the Godhead's there with Him. And we know that He spoke everything into being, that it's been there. He created everything out of nothing. And He spoke and it was so. And these things took place. So he goes and says here, not only is the word eternal, but the word also coexisted with God. In this sense, the word shares in God's nature in a distinct way. John highlights the close relationship between the word and between God. And that takes us to this third phrase here. And the word was God. The word was with God in the beginning But the Word was God, too. While God the Father and the eternal Word are of one and the same nature, they are also two distinct persons. The Word shares the same nature as God God the Father, Colossians 2.9, but operates in a unique way. Okay, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, we could read there, 1 John 4, 14. Uh, both of these passages help to uh, illuminate that. We don't have time to, to look at those. But John had to stress that the word is equal to the eternal God of Israel. Therefore, the word has the same attributes of, attributes of God, specifically these two, eternality and divinity. God is eternal. He's on the space-time continuum timeline when God created and made everything. They're back here beyond that. They're eternal. They're God the Father, the Word, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They're back here. They're eternal. But in the same sense, they're divine. They're God. They're holy, 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 Lord God Almighty who is and who was and who is to come. He's the Almighty. He has all power, all ability, all authority. This is this word that's with God, the Father. Verse 2 says, He was with God in the beginning. So at the beginning of the time-space continuum, as we know, at the beginning of this earth, this universe, the beginning of light, the beginning of darkness, so on and so forth, animal life and mankind and so on. John concluded the introductory text by again referring to the eternal nature of the Word. The nature that characterizes God the Father has also characterized the Word since the beginning. Verse 3 says, through him all things were made. By who? Not a trick. You could say either one, couldn't you? You could say God, but you could say the Word. And we know when we get further into the New Testament and we see things, we see the Word and that part of the Godhead created all these things for Himself. And He holds them all together by the Word of His power, through His providence. I mean, John's given us a lot of theology and a lot to dig in. And with the 66 books that we have, man, we can just keep 
digging down deep and getting more and more information about this. I mean, it's, it, it can be overwhelming at times when we, we stretch the limits of, of what's here and try to understand them in our mind where we are, and we're talking about eternal things and heavenly things and spiritual things and then things that are uh, temporal and earthy because that's who we are as, as people right now, even though we have the spirit in us if we're a Christian. It's just, whew, there's a lot there. John's transition from a discussion on the nature of the word to a discussion on the work of the word. The word is creative and personal. Genesis tells how God created by his word. Genesis 1, 1 through 31. Psalms 33, 6, just a few verses to help uh, teach that. John applies the idea to the work of the eternal word in him, making all things. As the word coexisted with the Father, the word is the source of life. And through the word, all things came into existence. Again, if you want these verses, I have four or five of them here that teach that. So we see here this eternal word in these first three verses that John brings up. And again, he's battling this pagan idea of what they believe of the word and what their gods can do. And can their gods do anything? No. <laughs> They're make-believe. That's all part of Satan's trick. You know, he wants to trick people into believing that they're something when they're nothing. But God and the Word, they're something. They're eternal. They're divine. They have life in them. You know, not that they just give life. They're life. Jesus is life. He's the way, the truth, the life. Man, it's, it's, it's powerful. It's good stuff. Verse 4 says, In him was life. You see, life was in him. And that life was the light of all mankind. The word of God did not simply create life, but life preexisted in him by the nature of the word's relationship with God the Father. The substance of life is more than physical for the word is found, eternal life. In bringing light into the world, the word contrasts with the world's darkness. In this regard, John speaks of spiritual light. Jesus connects himself with the nature of this light. The spiritual light is available to the whole world. But not all people will receive the light, as we're going to read here. Not all accept Jesus. Verse 5 says, the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. Darkness cannot overcome light. If we shut off all these lights in here and uh, put paper on the windows and different things, and maybe on the windows back there at the, the back of the assembly area here, we could probably get it a little bit dark. Not dark like down in the 
the depths of Laurel Caverns if anybody's been down there and they shut the lights off. It's dark. <clears throat> that kind of dark. Seems overwhelming, overpowering when you're in that thick dark. But as soon as somebody lights a lighter, as soon as someone turns their cell phone on, as soon as someone puts a flashlight on, as soon as someone flips that switch again and puts the light on, which overpowers the other? The light overpowers the other one. The darkness can't overpower the light. We must understand that. Satan's got men buffaloed, blinded. He's got their ears plugged. Their eyes covered where they can't see. And they think that the darkness and these things and the pleasures and so forth of the world are powerful and good and appealing. And they're not. We need to be in the light, which is powerful and appealing and holy and true and pure and honest and good and loving and graceful and merciful that God has showered down upon us. And these things are in the word. This is who he is. This is part of his makeup, part of his being. This darkness just can't overcome this. Darkness might specifically refer to here to people who have resisted the word. Darkness is people resisting the word. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to believe it. They don't want to become Christians. They experience spiritual blindness as they willfully live in the darkness of their evil. However, darkness could also refer generally to the status of the world as a whole. John could be referring also to both possibilities and maybe others that we're not thinking about. The two types of darkness could occur simultaneously, but would not diminish the role of God's light. God's light is still going to overpower them. Darkness cannot overpower it. And we need to choose. Do we want to choose darkness in our life? We can have it. Or do we want to choose light? Which guides us, keeps us from falling into holes, keeps us from walking off the cliff. The darkness has not overcome the scope of God's light. This phrase might allude to the way the light is overtaking the darkness in the same way that darkness might overtake a person. As God's light overtakes darkness, the darkness is unable to overpower the brilliance and the power and the effect of the light. And he comments there on those verses, one down through verse five. Okay, let's jump on over here to verse six and eight. He switches gears a little bit here. He said, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Is that the apostle? John the Baptist. It's, it's important that we catch that. He's switching gears and now he's talking about John, the forerunner, who's come and uh, as a prophet is saying, hey, here's the one. Here's the Messiah. Here's the word that took on flesh. Here's the light. You need to be looking to him. Here's the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. So there was a man sent from God. This guy's sent from God. His name was John. John transitioned 
to describe the man who would turn out to be the earthly forerunner to the word. As this forerunner was sent from God, this man served as a prophet to the ministry of God. The Old Testament prophets served a similar role as they proclaimed God's will to his people, even when the people refused to listen. And here we see that this prophet, whose name was John, is not the apostle who wrote the gospel, but John the Baptist. And as a witness to all who would hear, John the Baptist came before the incarnate word of God to prepare the hearts of all people so when the word arrived, they'd be able to accept him. Verse 7 says, he came as a witness. John the Baptist came as a witness for the word, for the Son of God, to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. John the Baptist came into the world with a God-given commission to bear witness, to testify to Jesus Christ, the light of the world. Before John the Baptist was tragically murdered, he served as a herald, declaring the coming of the Messiah. Many of Jesus' own disciples came to follow Jesus and believe after hearing John's witness. Some of John's disciples followed Jesus because they heard his teachings and he pointed Jesus out to them. Verse 8 it says there, he himself was not the light. John was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. So John the Baptist spoke regarding the light of God. Some people thought that he might be the promised Messiah. At the time of the composition of John's gospel, some people apparently still held to that belief. However, the gospel dispels that misunderstanding. John the Baptist only gave witness to the eternal light. So he came and bore witness, pointing to him. Here's the one you're looking for. And he comments there on 6, 7, and 8. Pretty straightforward, right? Verse 9 through 11. It says, A true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Who's that? Jesus, right? Even though John the Baptist's witness illuminated the hearts of his audience, the word of God is the light for humanity. Truth implies accuracy and veracity. However, as the gospel uses the word in this specific instance, truth emphasizes the light's authentic nature as being from God. It's purity and it's power and it's substance when you think of light and, and what it does. It uh, comes from God, the true light that comes into the world and has been revealed to everyone. Those people who receive the gift of Jesus Christ will live in the light of his salvation. Verse 10 ties on to that and says, He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, even though Jesus made the world and he was in the world, the world didn't recognize him. What's that mean? They, they didn't believe he was the Messiah. Yeah, they didn't believe it. 
Yeah, that's the carpenter's son. Is that, how in the world could he be the Messiah? He was born out of wedlock. See how they attacked him? They went after him. It just did, wasn't rational in their minds from what they knew and understand of the law. Oh, no. Contact almost flipped out. <clears throat> Sorry. <clears throat> they, they just didn't want to believe. They didn't want to accept him. And the idea of this belief is to trust in and rely on and obey. They just didn't want to do that. And if you did those things, and we know they understand the Bible, what would we become if we believed and trusted in and relied on and obeyed God or Jesus? We'd become Christians, wouldn't we? As we're going to read here, we'd become children of God. And a lot of people just didn't do that. They didn't accept Jesus for who he was. It's a shame that they, they were caught in that. Even though he was in the world and made the world, they just didn't recognize him as the Messiah, the Savior, as being eternal and divine. Verse 11 says, he came to that which was his own, but his own didn't receive him. What's that mean? He came to the Jews. Man, he took care of them. Brought them out of Egyptian captivity and gave them the law and, and taught them and trained them and uh, eventually went and even died. You know, think about John. He's probably writing this again in the introduction. They say probably about midway through the first century. So this could have been around 50 AD, maybe 55 or so. So he's already been able to see and witness the ones that he came to. Now, is that completely true? No, because we know the apostles were Jews. We know that around 3,000 were saved on the day of Pentecost. There were Jews there. There were others. You know, the church started to grow, multiply. There were th about 3,000 and then 5,000, and the numbers kept multiplying and, and adding. But there finally came a time with the persecution that they dispersed. But who did they always go to first? What was Paul's practice? He always went to the synagogue. He always went to the Jews first because they had some knowledge and understanding. They had the scrolls and were able to read them. So we know there were some who, who believed, but not all of them. And they should have been trained and known better and been able to witness and see and say, here's the Son of God. Here's the Messiah. Here's the suffering servant that we've been studying about. Here's the Word that came and took on flesh and tabernacled amongst us, we're going to see. <clears throat> Verse 12 says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed, adhered to, trusted in, relied on, obeyed his name, he gave the right to become children of God. What does that mean? If they obey what, 
children of God. Is that anything? Yeah. <laughs> yes, it is. Hallelujah. Praise God. We can be part of God's family. Jesus is our elder brother, and he can take care of us and look after us. You know, there were a lot of times in my life, I liked it that I had an older brother. He was five years older than me. Kids didn't mess with me. I come home crying. God, you're like, what's up? Kids are picking on me in that. What? I taught you better than that. Come on, let's go. <laughs> and God stick up for me. And he put those kids in their place or whatever. And uh, it was nice having an elder brother to protect you and to look after you and help um, lead you and guide you in various ways. And isn't it nice that we have such a wonderful heavenly father and a wonderful brother, elder brother, that can help lead us and guide us and protect us and be that good shepherd in our lives. Um, what a wonderful thing that we have. And it's simple. All we got to do is believe. That adhering to and trusting in and relying on and obeying. We need to believe him and confess him before men and repent of our sins and be baptized and become Christians and live faithful lives. And then we're going to be called children of God. We're in John chapter 1. Uh, we're down in verse... Uh, 12 and 13 right now. And what a wonderful, wonderful blessings that are connected with this and wonderful thing that we're able to, to get. Verse 13 goes on and says, children born. And notice how he says these different things. Not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will. What, what did the... Children of Israel always say, Abraham is our father. Abraham's our father. Because of my bloodline, I'm God's family. I'm going to make it. I'm good to go. Don't have anything to worry about. Well, that doesn't say that, does it? See, we need to be born of God. In three chapters here, Jesus meets with Nicodemus and tells him how he can be born of the water and the spirit. Huh? Tells him what he needs to do and what we need to do. You see, the new family identity happens by virtue of birth, but not a physical birth. John uses three negative phrases to stress that being born as children of God cannot be obtained through physical procreative acts. No physical reality, a person's descent, the human desires, or human will can result in this new birth. It's only through this belief, it's only through this faith in the word of truth that a person can be born into the family of God. And that happens for us when what? When we become a Christian, then we get added to the family of God. And now we'll break down this last verse 14 um, in a couple different points here. But we see here again this word. In the beginning was the word. That's how this chapter started, right? Now we're coming and he's bringing you down to some concluding remarks here. Again, as he was, was, was building and giving us teaching, he goes here now and says that this word that was in the beginnings now become flesh. 
Think about that. God, who created this world and made these flesh and blood people, us, Adam and Eve, left heaven and now has come and took on that flesh. God the Father left all that power and majesty, or God the Word left all that power and majesty and came here and took flesh on. Ultimately to do what? Redeem us to die on the cross. To be the ultimate, perfect, blameless, without a blemish, Lamb of God and die for our sins. Wild to think about that God, who he is, didn't have to do that. He could have planned some other way. But he actually came into his creation and took on flesh. The word became flesh. John previously stated that the word, the true light, had come into the world. The nature of that coming into the world is now evident. The word took on human flesh. This identifies the eternal Pre-existent word is the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Eternal life comes by salvation through Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In the scope of John's New Testament writings, the concept of flesh can refer to fallen human nature in contrast to the ways of God's Spirit. However, it can also refer to a physical human body. John's usage here in this instance regarding the word refers to the body. He took on a body. He took on flesh. He became like us. Pinch yourself. That's what Jesus did. God did. The word did for us. In ways that, again, are mysterious, yet glorious, Hard for us to comprehend, the Word of God became human and entered into His creation. This reality is the central component of the Incarnation, a doctrine that describes the Word of God becoming human man in Jesus Christ. The details of the Incarnation are a paradox. The Word of God humbled Himself to live among His creation. Philippians 2, 6-8. This occurred as God sent his son, born of a virgin, Galatians 4.4, conceived by God's spirit, Matthew 1.20. The how of the incarnation is a mystery to the human mind. Despite this mystery, the result of the incarnation is clear. Salvation for humanity through God's incarnate son. Amen. What a wonderful thing he did. And it says, and he dwelt among us. In the incarnation, the word of God did more than just come to earth. In Jesus Christ, the word made his dwelling within creation. By describing the incarnate word in this manner, John alludes to God's presence, his dwelling place in the tabernacle in the camp of ancient Israel. And in the same God who made his presence known in a particular way to ancient Israel, has revealed his presence through Jesus Christ. God took up residence in the midst of his creation by taking on the same flesh and blood as humanity. And as a result of this intimacy of relationship, 
God will be father. His people will be his children. And then we see, we have seen his glory. Again, John puts himself in this number. John seen his glory, saw his miracles and signs and wonders, and the teaching that he gave like no other man was able to give. And the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John includes himself as among the we who have seen the glory of incarnate God. John saw firsthand the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He held also, he had also been uh, among the closest of Jesus' disciples who saw his glory firsthand. In addition to providing proof of Jesus' divine nature, the glory observed by John could only be ascribed to God the Father. The incarnate Son was able to receive and show this because he was the unique only Son of God. There is no other like Jesus. Jesus is the top. As the unique and the only Son of God, Jesus demonstrated the attributes of his Father for the world. Through the incarnation, God's grace was made available to the world. And furthermore, Jesus embodied God's truth. Through the incarnate word, God's truth has been revealed to all humanity. And again, it comes down to a choice. Are we going to accept the darkness? Are we going to accept the light? Are we going to do what's right and become his children and be a part of his family? Or are we going to reject that? It's time to close. It's 20 after. Let's pray and we'll get ourselves ready to worship God this morning. Dear God and Heavenly Father, we love you. We again thank you for these verses and hopefully we are able to deal uh, some justice to them. Uh, We know there's so much more we could have looked at and so many other scriptures we could have used to help uh, substantiate these points and uh, get them uh, more cemented in our minds. But we thank you for what we were able to look at today. Be with us now as we turn our hearts, minds, and attention to your table as we worship you and remember what Jesus did for us by coming into this world and ultimately dying on the cross for our sins. Be with Covey as he preaches and the men as they lead in the singing and those that are doing the communion and offering meditations and help all these things that we say and do bring honor and glory to you. And we love you and we thank you for Christ. And it's in his wonderful name that we do pray. Amen. Thank you.